Well, good morning. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here at Mercy House. I want to welcome you and any kids that are elementary school age are welcome to go down for the kids class at this time. So we've been working our way through the book of Acts and we're in chapter 5, uh, into 4 and uh, beginning of 5. If you want to grab Bibles and start finding that, it's the fifth book in the New Testament. You'll want to follow along with me. So, so far we've been looking at a group of very ordinary people in the book of Acts who are doing some extraordinary things. And on one hand, they're doing things that we do, right? They're, they're gathering for, for prayer. They are worshiping. They are uh, devoting themselves to the teaching of Scripture. They are loving one another. They are on a mission uh, for, the, for the gospel. And, uh, and then on the other hand, we see that these simple things, things that most churches do, are being empowered by the Spirit in a way that really makes the church of Acts very extraordinary. And God keeps showing up and in, and in a multitude of ways. And so it's the, so the first way He shows up at Pentecost, and they're able to speak languages that they didn't know like five minutes before. And then the Holy Spirit shows up in, in, a, in a healing of a paralyzed man there by the temple. And we see the Holy Spirit showing up and giving the church boldness to proclaim the gospel, even in the midst of, of persecution. And then today, what we look at is a couple of other ways that the Holy Spirit is, is, is demonstrating His power in the midst of this church of ordinary people. And so one of the ways we see is generosity and another is, is judgment. So generosity and judgment. Those are two things that we're going to look at today in this text uh, to help understand how God is revealing Himself in the church of Acts. So we see a great am amount of, of generosity described in Acts chapter 4. I'm just going to read this again. Just, just make sure you're, you're hearing the text here, Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Right? Wow. Generosity. Uh, it gives a specific example of folks in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. And then verse 36, we have kind of the poster child of this kind of generous giving. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Crazy generous. Crazy generous. Uh, why? why? Why are they being so crazy generous? Well, one of the reasons is because they're not considering their possessions uh, as something that they own. Right? They, they've come to understand in the, in the gospel and in the power of the Holy Spirit that they are actually managers, are stewards of the things that they previously thought they were owners of. That God is the owner of their money, of their houses, of everything material that, that they have in their possession. 
and they're believing that God as the owner is telling the managers or the stewards to be generous with it. And so because their understanding is God is telling them to be generous, they are being generous. They're doing what the boss is saying to do with the resources that they've been given to steward. It's a massive shift in their paradigm, in their understanding of wealth, of possessions, right? And we see this in the New Testament. We see this described. First uh, Timothy 6, the Apostle Paul's training a young pastor, Timothy, how to talk to his people about this kind of, of truth. He says, verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So you see those, those two principles there in that verse 17, verse 18, where he's saying, God is your provider, therefore be generous with your resources. God, who's the owner, is saying to the manager, to the steward, give resources away. You know, the first time that I really started to learn about this was I was 19 years old. I'd been a Christian for about a year. I was talking to my college pastor, Tom, and he was telling me about tithing. And I was like, tithing? What's that? He said, well, it's a, it's a principle from Old Testament that a lot of Christians bring forward into the New Testament as, as a principle, as a standard, and they give away 10% of their income to the church as offering. And I knew, I, knew Tom's, I knew enough about Tom's finances that they were really tight, right? He was a Ph.D. student in journalism. He was working part-time as a college pastor. He was doing lots of side jobs. His wife was an artist at home with children trying to sell some of her art. I knew things were really tight. And so I was like, but you don't do that, right? Because things are really tight, right? You, you don't. This is like for rich people, right? And he's like, no, no, we do this. And it was just one of those moments where I go, oh, like this is something that mature Christians do. This is, some, this is an act of faith that people do that, that's, that's scary. It's risky. It's crazy, right? It's crazy generous. When I was a youth pastor, just like two years later, I don't know what they were thinking hiring me, but they did. And I met Mr. Phelps. And this was... You know, this is like 30 years ago. Mr. Phelps was old 30 years ago, and he's still, he's still going. And he was the church treasurer, right? He was the guy that wrote the check. So when I needed a check for a youth camp or something, I had to go to Mr. Phelps, and he made me fill out a form, and he gave me this check to take to the youth camp or whatever. And I'm talking to my pastor about Mr. Phelps, and uh, he said, yeah, there's a lot more to Mr. Phelps that, that needs the eye. I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Phelps is a generous, generous man. I'm like, what do you mean? And, and I kind of pressed him, and he said, well, let me tell you a little story. He said, back in the 80s, when our church was not doing well financially, he said, I didn't know that we weren't doing well financially because Mr. Phelps, who was the church treasurer back in the 80s, was doing all the bills, and he would, he'd figure up at the end of, of the month how many bills were left, how much money was needed for those bills, and then he would write a check to the church to cover the bills, and we were always in the black every month. And he, the pastor's like, I'm trying to figure this out. How is it that we're always in the black every month? And then I figure out Mr. Phelps is writing the check every week, right? Crazy, 
generous. Now, why why would God ask people to do that, right? Like, what what's the purpose behind that? What why what what motivates us to do that, right? So so a couple of things I think in, in the text. One is that they're giving so that the gospel mission can go forward. They're excited about the gospel mission, and and they want it to go forward. Uh, the apostles don't have jobs. I don't know if you realize that. They weren't working as farmers during the day and then apostling at night. They were full-time, all in, all time and attention to the ministry of the gospel. Some of them had families. We know Peter had a family. We know Peter had a mother-in-law, so we're kind of deducing. He had a mother-in-law and must have a wife, therefore he probably had family. Most people were married in those days. There weren't a lot of... Lot of not a lot of single, untethered people uh, in, that, in that particular culture. So, the, again, I want you to see these folks as ordinary people. They had ordinary needs. They had financial needs. They had family needs. They had food needs. They needed a roof over their head. And the apostles had been trained by Jesus to rely on the generosity of others to pay for their bills. Back in places like Matthew 10, when he's training them, it's kind of the apostolic boot camp. And he's sending them out, and he says this to them in Matthew 10, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborers deserves his food. You're like, laborer deserves his food? What laborer are we talking about? We're talking about gospel ministry. He's saying to the apostles, look, you've been called to do gospel ministry full time. You deserve your wages. Don't feel bad about taking the generous giving of those. And what they were doing is going house to house, and they're saying, hey, can we stay with you while we do ministry? And he said, if they say peace to you, you say peace to that house, and you eat whatever they put in front of you. He said, don't feel bad about it, because the treasure you're giving them in the gospel is worth a whole lot more than any generosity they're offering to you. The laborer deserves the wages. You see, here the same thing is, again, Apostle Paul trains Timothy, a young pastor, how to uh, think about uh, this kind of a concept. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. There's that phrase again. So he says, elders that labor full-time in preaching and teaching are worthy of double honor. So single honor is respect. So all of the elders are worthy of single honor. They're worthy to be respected, right? But those that labor full-time are worthy of double honor, which is both respect and wages for preaching and teaching. Now, most of gospel ministry is done by those who don't get paid to do it. That's you, most of you. You're sent out every week to do gospel ministry among your neighborhoods and your classes and the places where you work, your friends, your family. That's the majority of gospel ministry. But there are some that God calls to full-time gospel ministry. They help to build the platform, the launching pad, if you will, for all those other gospel ministers to be launched into the world. The laborer deserves the wages. Now, that's obviously 
my calling, right? To preach and teach, to, to shepherd, to pour myself into gospel ministry full time. That's the, the people that work on your staff. That, that's those folks, right? That God has called to be in full time gospel ministry. Most of us, including myself, in this church context, are raising a, a lot of our financial support. We go outside the walls. We go to other, other places, alumni, some, some relationships that we've had throughout uh, just different uh, ministry contexts, and we raise a lot of, of support, right? And, and it makes sense because our context is such that we've, we've got a lot of college students, and college students don't have a lot of money. They're not working yet. But what I want you to hear in this text is a challenge as a church to be moving toward the day when you are paying your pastor. You are paying your staff. I want you to long for that. I want this text to stir up a longing for that. I want you to pray toward that. If you haven't already, I want you to begin praying, God, would you make a way for this church to be able to pay for its ministry? Right? And then I want you to give toward that, to generously give such that we look at that budget, the needs that we have, and we see the income coming in and those actually matching up. They also are giving because there's needs in the congregation. Not only do they want to see the gospel ministry go forward and advance, but they also know that there's needs in the congregation. It says that there, wasn't a, there was not a needy person among them. And that's not because they all lived in the suburbs and they were all well off. It's because those that had resources were leveraging those resources to make sure those inside the congregation were taken care of. One of the main expressions of that in, in the Acts Church was their ministry to the widows. We'll read about that l- later, but... There were these widows that were in the church, and they didn't have anyone to take care of them. They, they couldn't go get a job because of the, the cultural context. Women couldn't go out and just find a job. And so if you didn't have family to take care of you, and you, you couldn't get a job, you were left to be on the street, destitute. And so these women were Christians, and, and, and they brought them in, and they cared for them. And they kind of became part of the staff. They continued to serve the body. But they were cared for by, mo- by monies that were given by people like Barnabas in the church. We, we have ongoing needs in our church. Uh, we have kind of an organic thing that happens in our church that's really encouraging where people have needs and we see pe- people that, that meet those needs. Sometimes it's a small group that knows a, a small group member has a need. And I've seen this happen hundreds of times where people are taking care of one another financially and making sure that needs are met. We do that in an organizational way as well. There's a percentage of what's given on Sunday mornings that becomes the benevolence fund. And so we've done all kinds of things with that money. We've, we've helped people that were, uh, some of this is inside the church, some of this is outside the church, community folks that come to us and have needs. But we've paid for people to, to pay like deposits for apartments where they're on the street or they're about to be on the street and they can't get into the apartment unless they have like two months. And we've helped them to do that so they could get into an apartment. We've helped with emergency housing where folks are kind of in between housing and they're going to be on the street if we don't help them 
uh, get some housing. We've done this to help people get set up in their housing. Sometimes people can get into housing, but they can't buy any groceries. They can't buy any food. They can't buy any uh, things to set up the actual house. And we've used some of that benevolence money to get people set up. We've used it for transportation needs. We had uh, a, a grad student who was really struggling with some mental health issues, needed to get back home and just be with, with family and, and get some encouragement and healing and didn't have the money to get back. And we helped them uh, through that benevolence fund uh, to get back. We've had folks that have had medical needs, all, all kinds of things that we've used that money for. And, and somet- sometimes that's inside the congregation, sometimes that's outside the congregation. And if you have a need, you know that that fund is there. If you know of someone who has a need, know that that fund is it's there. It's, it's not an infinite fund, but it's there. And that's why it's there. Because we want to make sure that we can meet needs inside the congregation and meet needs that are presented to us when they come from the community. But we're able to do that because people have been crazy generous, right? That those that have resources are leveraging those resources. They're giving those resources because they want to meet those needs inside the congregation and out, into, uh, out in the community. But we need more crazy generosity. <laughs> we do. You see this slide come up every you know, end of every uh, uh, service. Right? And, and it's, it's starting to become white noise. It's like, oh, there's the red in the Mercy House budget. It, it, it's like the, the budget crisis of the American government, you know? It's like, I don't know how they pay for stuff, but it all works out, so who cares? And by God's grace, there, there was a surplus that we had, which is a miracle. I, I don't know how we ever have a surplus, but by God's grace, we had it. And so that's how we're continuing. But if these trends continue, there's not going to be a surplus. There's not going to be enough money to pay everybody and pay for the building and, and to continue forward. We're, we're about to have to do major construction projects because we've got two roofs that leak and a, uh, a, a, a um, fire escape off the back of the parish house that's in shambles. And the, the city is like, you got to fix it, got to fix it, got to fix it. Okay, so we, we've got these expenses and then we have more expenses coming. This is real. Okay, this is not like the American budget crisis. I don't understand that either, but I, I don't have to. I'm the pastor, okay? It's what's, what's real is, is that it takes us $35,000 a month to function here in the current ministry structure. The 20000 or 21 or so that you see is really a goal for in-house giving. There's another 15000 that we know is going to come from the outsider. That's what we project. So already we're raising fifteen grand a month outside of the walls to supplement the twenty that we pray and hope and encourage to come from inside the walls. We need people around here to be crazy generous, and there are people that are crazy generous here. No, don't 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 hear me wrong. Like there are, but there are some who this this concept has not, for whatever reason, has not taken up residence in their discipleship. So last year, we had five families that gave $9,000 or more for the year. Five, five families. Look, we need 30 families to do that. We need 30 families to give $9,000 in 2018. That's like 750 a month. And some of you are going, oh, man, that is crazy generous. I know. I know. You know, we put out the texting thing, right, that you can give through a text. 
And we did that for students because we know you don't carry cash. You don't carry checkbooks. We know by the time you get back to your dorm, you've forgotten we even have a website. Okay? Just being honest here. So we put that in front of you because we, we know that there's desire there to give, and you, and you should as a student. Like, don't, don't be just a consumer. Don't just come in here and go, oh, sermon was like a B-plus today, and music was pretty good. Like, glad I got some free food. Don't do that. Don't be that. Right? I mean, I, I started tithing when I was 19. When I heard Tom explain what he was doing, I don't know, there's something in me. I want to do that. I want to be that. And so my first summer after that, I, I came back to, to, to my church at school, and I, I tithed my summer, right? And I don't know, it was like $362 or something. But I was like, this is a lot of money. <laughs> and it, it hurt <laughs> to put that in the offering. But, but I did it. I never looked back. Never looked back. No matter what. God, I'm going to honor you with this. I'm going to trust you. You're my provider. It's, it's not me trying to figure this thing out all by myself like you're my dad. And I, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to trust you, God. And, and he is worthy of that, that trust. So I think we had four students take us up on the text thing. Four. Thank you. Whoever you are, you four. We need 80 to do that. We need 80 students to give 20 a week. That's what we need. If we had 30 families give 750 a month and we had 80 students give 20 a week, we'd cover the budget. And you students are saying, that's crazy generous. I know. That would really stretch me. I know. That would be a real sacrifice. I know. Do you not think that's what they were feeling in the book of Acts? You don't think that's what Barnabas was feeling? When he sold off that field, it was probably in his inheritance. Have you ever thought like that? Have you ever thought, what can we sell so we could give more to the church? You ever, ever had a meeting with your spouse, a budget meeting, and said, how can we increase income and decrease expenses so we can give more? Not so we can fix the kitchen. Not so that we can get a better car. But so that we could actually be more generous. Have you ever done that? Because that's what the folks in Acts were doing. They were trying to figure out how can we give more money to gospel mission. They were crazy generous. It's one of the ways that the gospel was authenticated. It's one of the ways that people looking into the church were going, wow, God's at work. He's doing something supernatural. It wasn't just to healings. It wasn't just boldness. It it was this generosity. And we'll see that throughout the book of Acts. We're going to see some more of this generosity and how it impacts those that are from the outside looking in. Now, there was also this judgment that we read about. Acts 5 Verse 1, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira told a, uh, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit 
and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've, you've not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And the young men rose and they wrapped him up and they carried him out and they buried him. We don't like this story. It's understandable. We don't like to see people, God striking people down. We look at that and we go, God, this does not seem consistent. I mean, if, if God was consistently striking down hypocrites, there'd be a lot lower attendance at church, I think. It doesn't seem like he always does this, but for this moment in the history of the church, this is indeed what he does. Now, what's going on with this couple? Right? What, we don't know a lot of backstory, but we know this much. They saw the generosity of others. They saw Barnabas give the proceeds from the, the land he sold off. They saw Barnabas get a nickname from the apostles. That's kind of cool, right? I like to have a nickname from the apostles. And they see that, and they like that. And they start thinking about, what would it be like to be viewed like that? That people would see us as crazy generous. As, as those that are devoted, the committed, the inner circle. What would it be like to, to pass Peter on the street? And for Peter to look at us and go, oh, Ananias and Sapphira. Well, I wish we had more couples like them. We could use 25 more couples like that. What could we do with gospel ministry if we just had those kinds of couples? I'm sure part of it is the cash flow, right? How, is it possible that we could be seen as sacrificial and committed and devoted, but then have some cash flow? Some money in our account that's not earmarked for bills? Feels really good. At least that's what I hear. It, it, these kinds of things, I'm sure, were going through their minds. We'll be liked, we'll be looked up to, we'll be considered part of the committed. There's also some spiritual warfare going on. Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So Satan's at work in the unseen. Satan always has to have something to work with. So this is a, a sin issue in their hearts that was already there, and then Satan sees that, and he accelerates it. He, he, he throws some gasoline on it. We know this from verses like Ephesians 4, where Paul says this, Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. So Paul's saying in that instance, it's, it's sinful anger. If you have sinful anger, you don't deal with it, the devil can use that as a foothold and, and get a little wedge into your life and then have some influence in your life. And so I think Peter's pointing this out here, that they've allowed Satan to now be working in a sin issue that they have in their life, and now he's influencing their hearts. Now, Jesus has some harsh things to say about people who are religious, who attempt to exploit God's work, God's people for their own gain. In Matthew 23, 
He says this to the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you are outwardly, you appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's a, it's a very startling image of, of a tomb, a, a whitewashed tomb, a beautiful tomb. You've seen these, you've, you've driven by cemeteries and you see these big mausoleums and they're gorgeous and they have, you know, um, big beautiful statues and, and plaques. But inside, we know what's in there, decaying corpses. And Jesus says, that's, that's who you are, hypocrite. You look really good on the outside. You are posing in a way that makes people on the outside think you are really committed, really devoted, really a lover of God. But inside, you're rotting corpses. But, but why does God strike Ananias and Sapphira down? Like, we know this is a problem. Like, hypocrisy is a, has been a problem in God's people throughout the ages. Why, at this moment, does he strike down Ananias and Sapphira? Now, this reveals some presuppositions that we hold regarding how God should act. We require that God extend mercy to every human being until they die of natural causes. That, that's our presupposition, that that is, that is what has to happen. Now, what we need to understand is that every person who dies, dies under the sovereign control of God. Every breath you take is given to you as a gift of mercy from the sovereign God who's in control of who lives and who dies. It's just a little more dramatic in this story. How do I know that? Places like Hebrews 9.27, it says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You think every, every death, it, it somehow it's appointed. Now, I know there's, you start thinking about that philosophically, about free will and sovereignty of God, and I get it. Like, there's, there's some mystery there, and I'm not going to go into that. But on a simple level, saying, Jesus even says, not a sparrow falls in the Sermon on the Mount, unless my Father wills it. He's in control of the breaths you take and when you breathe your last. I saw this article, kind of a creepy article from a couple of weeks ago, and it's a, a, about a cryonics company in Russia. You can pay $36,000 to have your blood drained after you die and have yourself frozen in liquid nitrogen. And you can be frozen there and you can await when science can somehow cure you and bring you back to life. And I saw that and I thought, what a waste of $36,000. <laughs> and I thought about Hebrews 9. God's in control of when you die, when you don't die. That day's appointed. And, and that breath that you're breathing right now, it's, it's a gift from God. Every one of them. And at some point, He will say... That's your last breath. And in that moment, for Ananias and Sapphira, he said, that's it. No more mercy. 
it's over. Which again, occurs for all of us, but in this particular situation, it occurred in a very dramatic fashion. So why would he do that? A couple of reasons. One, he wants to authenticate the gospel. There was, there's good news and there's bad news. If you're understanding the gospel correctly, there's the bad news of judgment. There's the bad news that, that sin results in death. And that death's not just physical, that death is eternal. And that if you don't realize your sin and, and, and bring that out, to bring the, the spiritual uh, rotting corpse reality in your, inside yourself, bring it out into the light and have the Savior save you from it, you will die in this life and the life to come. I know that's bad news, but if you don't believe that bad news, you don't understand that bad news, you won't run toward the good news. And so, yes, this, this is a severe moment in the, in the history of the church, but, but in God's mercy, He's showing them a little movie trailer of, of the reality of judgment. And it does result in greater gospel ministry, right? Acts 5.13, none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women? A whole bunch of people became Christians because of what happened in that moment with Ananias and Sapphira. They heard about the speaking in other languages? Eh, not that big a deal. They heard of a paralyzed person being healed and, and leaping and praising God? Eh, not that big a deal. That is a big deal, but for some reason, that didn't really catch their attention. They heard of the boldness of these ordinary, common apostles before the religious leaders. Didn't impress them. Two people dropped dead. I'm listening. Tell me more. I'm just being serious. God uses a whole multitude of things to, to draw people to himself. And in this particular situation, he uses a little glimpse of the realities of judgment to draw them to himself. Number two, he wanted to purify the church. Wanted to purify the church. So again, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So the other hypocrites left. When they saw that happen, uh... I think I'm going to go now, right? We're leaving. And the only ones left were those that were, were all in. They were all in. Now, we know hypocrisy hurts the church. I mean, this is always one, two, or three on people's list. If they've been in the church and they've left the church, they say, why'd you do that? Because of hypocrisy. So common. People say one thing, they do another. I'm done with the church. It hurts the church. And this is the very beginning of the church, and God knows hypocrisy is going to hurt the church. So he makes sure that there's a purification very early on in the Acts church. Now let me explain what I mean by hypocrites. What I'm, I'm not saying is, is that the only people that stayed were the perfect people. They were perfect on the inside, perfect on the outside. That's, that's not what, what I'm saying. What we're talking about is, is people are being honest with their sin. 
Right? They're not hiding what's real, really going on, on the inside, imposing and pretending on, on the outside. That's hypocrisy. Not being a hypocrite means being honest about what's inside, bringing that out into the light so that you can be saved and you can be sanctified. If Ananias and Sapphira had come in and talked to Pastor Peter and they said, we saw what Barnabas did and the generosity that he showed and we want to be like that, but, but we just can't. We're too greedy. We love money too much and I don't want to be like that, Peter, but, but I, I, would you help me? I don't think they would have dropped dead in Peter's office, okay? Pastor Peter would say, sit down. Let's talk. You're confessing your sin. Like that, that is the first step to transformation. Let me pray over you. That's what would have happened. How do I know that? Because of verses like from James chapter 5. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That's the remedy for hypocrisy. It's confessing what's going on inwardly, asking your friends in Christ to pray for you, and longing for transformation from the inside out. And that, that's what God was, was working at, bringing about in the early church. So at that moment, I think in the sermon, I'm, I'm you know, kind of always try to put myself where you are sitting there listening to me, and I know what I would be doing. I would be thinking, yeah, that's me. That's me. I am the humble, confessing Christian that's honest and authentic about what's really going on and asking for prayer. Let's, let's not go there so quickly, okay? I think we are more like Ananias and Sapphira than we're willing to admit. I'm thinking of last week when Chris was preaching about boldness. I was under conviction. I know. I, you know, it, it, it's good for me to sit under gospel-centered, biblical preaching and listen to that in the power of the Spirit. And I was under conviction because I was like, man, I, God, I know you want me to be a lot bolder than I am about the gospel. And what I sensed in the room, both in myself and in all of you, now I could be wrong, okay, so I don't know this for sure, but was a little bit of a lethargy as you listened to that sermon. And you heard this charge to be bold, and you thought, wow, Chris Gow, isn't he a great preacher? That's an amazing word. I'm so inspired. But you never made it to the place where you go, you know what, I'm not bold, Oh, God, forgive me that I'm not bold. Oh, God, would you make me bold? I want to go out, and I want to be bold for you. I don't think a lot of people experience that. Now, again, I may be wrong, and if, if I'm describing that experience, you're like, oh, that was me last week. Then praise God that in His mercy, He brought you to that place. But I, I sense a lot of folks, that's not where you were going. And it was interesting, Chris and I, we, I mean, I knew what the sermon was going to be about, and we had talked, and he's like, now, there are people in the back that are ready to pray, right? Because he's like, I think God's going to really do a work in the congregation, and I think people are going to want to get prayer because they're going to want God to work in them to make them bold. And I was like, yeah, like, 
Chris is expected. This is good for me. This is, this is, sometimes I get down in the rut and I'm not that expected. Yeah. And we, we had people ready back there to pray. And you know how many people came back? Zero in the first service. I was like, whoa, what's going on? We, we're quick to nod in, in an affirmation of a good sermon, good word. Yeah, preacher, that's great. Felt some like tinglings in me, you know? But not a lot of confession, repentance, longing, crying out to God. And again, it's not about going back for prayer. You can go back there if you want. It's, it's, you can, but, but go to a friend. Go to your small group. I mean, go to someone and confess and ask for prayer to be transformed, to resemble some of the boldness that we read in the biblical text in the book of Acts. For, for another example, so, so you, you know, you, the first part of the sermon, you hear me talk about generosity. You hear me do this every once in a while. Robert gives us a charge. You should tithe. You should give. You should go give crazy generous, right? And, and a few people respond to that, but, but most people are just like, thanks, but no thanks. And I know things are tight. I know finances are hard. They're hard at my house, too. But why not go to God and saying, I confess to you, God, I don't trust that you're a provider. I think that I'm my provider. Oh, God, forgive me for that. God, help me. God, give me more so I can give more. God, help me be a steward of what you've already given me. Confess that to a friend. Confess that to your small group. Ask your your friend, your small group, someone in the back. I don't care who. Someone to pray over you. It says right there, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another and you will be healed. You don't have to continue not being bold and and not being generous. You can be transformed. But it requires this confession, this reaching out to God in confession and asking for prayer. we are a lot more like Ananias and Sapphira than we're willing to admit. So why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Why? Why have you posed and pretended? Now, as far as I know, everyone's still alive in this moment. A little, a little scared to, to, to deliver that line. God, what are you going to do? Somebody going to drop dead today? I don't know. Maybe. But by God's mercy, if, if you are in that category of hypocrisy, which at some level all of us are, I think, the reason we're still drawing a breath is because of mercy. It's because of mercy. And that mercy has been given to us through... Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. This is what we celebrate every time we come to the table. Right? We, we are reminded that the God who is not a hypocrite, He is the same inside and out. That's part of what it means to be holy. He's the one who on that night, He's being betrayed. That's not fair. Holy God should not be betrayed. He's going to be denied 
Not fair, shouldn't happen to a holy God, but here he is. And what does he do? He takes bread, he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples. He says to them, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What he knows is is that he's going to breathe his last. And that that is going to be appointed by the Father. Isn't that interesting? Actually, Luke's the one that reports it in his gospel, and then he reports that phrase, they breathe their last in Acts. And And the reason that we can breathe our last and do so under the mercy of God is because Jesus breathed his last on the cross of Christ to save hypocrites like you and me. And so as he sits in that room with a bunch of hypocrites, a.k.a. disciples, soon to be apostles, he gives them this bread to remember the breaking of his body. He also takes the cup, he blesses it, he gives it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He reminds them that that he will pay a high price, his own blood, so that we can be not only forgiven, but be transformed at that inside of of decaying corpse spirituality could be brought to the outside, and we could be forgiven, and we could be made new, and we could be made bold, and we could be made generous. And, And that could be done so by the grace of God. So I wonder, if, is there anyone here that wants to be bolder in Christ, that, that knows that in the past you've not been bold and you want to confess that, and now you, you, you want to ask God to forgive you, but also to give you power to be bold? I, I want to confess that this morning. I want to confess that, not being bold as I should, and wanting to be bolder, and knowing I can't do that in my own strength. So I, I need prayer for that. I'm going to ask Chris Gow to come up. He's going to pray for me and anyone else that needs to confess that. Now, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not manipulating you. If you stay seated, I'm not going to judge you. Oh, so-and-so stayed seated. They wouldn't stand up and be bold. Okay, so that's not what this is about. Chris, come up. But if God, if he impressed on you last week or even this week, you need to confess that and to ask for God's mercy to make you into that kind of a Christian. I'm going to ask you to stand up. And you need to stand with me. You don't have to come down here. You can if you want. I, whatever. You can stand at your seat. I'm going to have Chris pray for us. Maybe seated. So, some of you are thinking the same thing about generosity this morning, right? You're challenged by what you see in the book of Acts. You're challenged by Barnabas, and, and, and you're thinking, I'm so scared of that. I'm so scared to be generous. I, I'm so scared to, to trust that God's my provider and to give in a way that's crazy and, and generous. And, and so, you on your own confess and seek prayer. And it could be in the back or it could be a friend here in the seats. It could be your small group. But, but don't, don't just sit through sermon after sermon after sermon and, and just 
kind of give it a B plus, an A minus, that was inspirational. Let the Word of God penetrate you. Let, let it change you. Let's, let's see God do something new and fresh in our personal lives and in the life of our church through the Word of God. So in a minute, we will come up and take the bread and the cup. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to do that. And that confession is part of the prep of, of coming up here. So we've done a little of that, so continue to do that. And then when you're, when you're ready to come up, you can take the bread and the cup. If you're not a Christian this morning, we want to say, first of all, we're really honored that you'd be here and be our guest. And we want to encourage you to receive the forgiveness and mercy that only comes through Jesus Christ. But yes, there is a severe consequence of being a sinner and not seeking salvation. We see that in this text today. We don't want to soft sell that. We don't want to pretend that's not there. It is there. But there is a Savior who loves you and He has paid an awful price so that you could be rescued and be brought into this family and into relationship with Him. So receive that by faith today. If you want to talk more about that, I'd be happy to do that. Others in the room, I'm sure, would be happy to do that. But if you're not there yet, you're just beginning to investigate, I want to encourage you during this time just to stay in your seat and to pray, to think about what you're hearing, and then seek someone out after the service to talk more about it. So let me pray and bless our communion time, and then we'll begin. God, thank you that you give mercy. God, you give mercy to us day in and day out. You, you give us this breath in our lungs. You give us these resources that we have, the strength in our bodies, the jobs that we have, the, the school that we go to. All these things, God, are from your hand. But they are merely reminders of the greatest gift that you've given us, which is the gift of yourself, even willing to give yourself on the cross. You are crazy generous. Thank you, God. We receive that with much joy, and we let that reality, that truth, go down deep into our hearts and souls, God, and may it transform us to be the men and women that you've created us to be. And we pray your blessing over the time, over the bread, over the cup, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.